It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast... I have an extra special guest, somebody who I consider to be one of my mentors and someone I've looked up to for a long time, David Kotak, Chairman, Chief Investment Officer of Cumberland Advisors. David is just one of those people who his name comes up all the time in all sorts of funny and unexpected ways. And, and what I mean by funny is is not haha funny, but just unusual funny. Uh, he is the nexus of a network of people, uh, very influential folks within the world of finance, asset management, economics, public policy, uh, Federal Reserve and monetary policy, uh, he, international relations and, and global interdependence. Uh, he has really created one of these careers where he is a very consequential individual far over what you might expect just from, you know, a quick read of his bio. I've been going to his uh, events. I don't know how I managed to wrangle an invitation all the way back in 08 or 09. Maybe it was when I was writing about the financial crisis before the financial crisis uh, that got me somehow an invite. But it really became one of my favorite things I do each year is we go up to Maine every August and, and go fishing. And I have met people who have become lifelong friends from, from this event. I have engaged in, in deals and transactions and media events and all manner of things that came out of this sort of miniature Davos that takes place in private on the lakes and streams and in the woods of Maine. It's it's really an amazing legacy that he's created for himself from this experience. And uh, I find him to just be one of those rare and unique individuals who just makes everybody around him that much better. Uh, so I'll, rather than me just babbling on and on, let me just say with no further ado, my conversation with Cumberland's David Kotak. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is one of my favorite people in the world of finance. David Kotak is co-founder, chairman, and chief investment officer of Cumberland Advisors, which runs about $4 billion in client assets. He is the author of numerous books, including Adventures in Muniland, uh, From Bull to Bear with ETFs. His most recent publications include Lessons from Thucydides 
and Zika lessons from a pandemic. He comes to us with three degrees from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. David Kotak, welcome back to Bloomberg. Barry, it's a pleasure indeed. Uh, We made it this far through the pandemic, and we've made it on a number of fishing trips and experiences for many years. And so I'm delighted to be here, one, and to be on the conversation, in the conversation with you, and that you're here as well. So we're going to circle back to some of the writings you've done, but let's just start out talking about what you were referencing these past two years, a market and an economy working its way through a global pandemic. As an investor, what do you make of this whole period? Well, you know, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting way to start the discussion. Um, I've studied pandemics, as you and I spoke about. Folks want some normalcy. They want business cycles. They want the traditional metrics. Pandemics don't work that way. They never have throughout history. And this one is no different. And therefore, market agents and people who do this type of analysis and examination of this COVID pandemic, who haven't studied history, miss the degree of the shock of a pandemic. And so what I make of this is how few people have really studied the history. There are some, of course, who have. You and I spoke about that. But uh, not a lot. They don't read history. I guess if it doesn't fit within the Twitter limits, (laughs) it's too much to read or understand. Who who could possibly ask for more than... uh... 280 characters on any subject. That seems uh, excessive. So you and I have been chatting about this big research piece you've been working on, on the history of market shocks, especially pandemics and, and health crises through history. Tell us about what some of your preliminary research has found. Well, we, we really divided the market shocks, Barry, into sort of three segments. So antiquity, um, post-medieval period, um, think of that as the Black Death Plague of 700 Mm -hmm. years ago up through um, maybe a century or two centuries ago, and then the modern period, and particularly the modern period during the Spanish flu, misnamed Spanish flu, but John Barry has made the name famous with his book, in 1918, which was really a pandemic of 1917, 18, 19, 20, and 21. Wow. And, and the Asian flu period, which was uh, the end of the Eisenhower administration, that's 1957 and 58. And we looked at the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco's study of pandemics for 700 years. They derived some macroeconomic data. It also provided us with a little bit of bibliography. We also went looking for more. Um, And that's how we are assembling this piece that I have to write in three sections uh, about pandemic shocks. Not the disease 
we know a lot about the disease part, about interest rates, inflation rates, wages, economic changes, growth uh, curves, reallocation of labor to capital. And what we kind of find is every single pandemic shock delivers a similar sequence. And this one is no different. All right, so hold on. I have to interrupt you. So, so when I think about that list that you gave us, the Black Plague, the pandemic of 1918, the 1950s, these are all very different environments, and I want you to walk me through them. First, the Black Plague in, in the middle of the last millennia, how do we even have any sort of data from the 1500s and 1600s? Tell us a little bit about the economic impact of the bubonic plague. Okay, so uh, what we did is this. How do you find economic data? That was a real challenge. And you can't go to Wikipedia or uh, some other source. You've got to open a book. It's an old-fashioned kind of research. So I have 25 books sitting around now in my uh, office. Um, they are references historical references, and they help me, and they help me in this search for information. And they also help me by saying what isn't in them. So a good example is Sidney Homer's treatise on the history of interest rates, because I can look at interest rate data that he accumulated in his research and find information that corresponds with the time periods of plagues and pandemics. At the same time, I went into Alan Meltzer's History of the Federal Reserve, which covered the period of the creation of the Fed from 1913 to 1951. It was the first of the two volumes. Unfortunately, Alan Meltzer died and never completed the second volume. And I looked at Milton Friedman's treatise, about monetary policy with Anna Schwartz. Two marvelous books that cover, in the case of Meltzer, the Spanish flu pandemic period. And in the case of Friedman, both the Spanish flu pandemic period and the 1957-58 Asian flu period. Neither one mentions disease. Neither one mentions pandemic shock. The minutes of the Federal Reserve, the history, don't talk about it. They talk about the war loans and the interest rates and the slowdown, and they attribute to war or geopolitical risk characteristics that also exist in pandemics. And what's very interesting is that when you look at history, you see pandemics and shocks, you also see wars. They go together. And that becomes a fascinating linkage. In modern time, we couldn't find the references, but we did find the data. For example, in the 57-58 Asian flu period, interest rates and Federal Reserve activity then was a very narrowly defined operation of a central bank. And what we found was, by 1959, inflation had rolled over and was back down towards zero, and huh. interest rates were falling. 
And there was a shock, sure. Was it attributed by the central bank to a disease shock? No. Was the disease shock a cause? Maybe. I remember the 57, 58 Asian flu. I was a teenager. How how did that compare to either the current um, pandemic we're going through with COVID or, and I know this is before your time, the pandemic of 1918 and the years oh. before and after? Okay, so if you look if you look at the World War One period, and you look at the Spanish flu pandemic, which was a worldwide event, and you say, I'm going to really combine them because actually the war, in part, was part of the reason the spread was yeah. so severe. What happened after the shock? Was it only the recovery from a post-war? environment? What triggered inflation to go down to zero in 1920? What triggered a period of no inflation, even as credit was expanding in the roaring 20s? What was the change? And the change was when you have a demographic shock and you have fewer people, you get two things. You get a rise in wages because the remaining people get paid more. They have Meaning to. literally the death rate affects the labor pool that much. Fewer bodies, same demand equals higher wages. Exactly. And people begin to compete to pay more to get minimal or scarce labor. Hmm. At the same time, something else happens. Entrepreneurial folks, governments too, reallocate capital away from labor to capital investment because they don't have a choice. They, they change what they do because they don't have the people to do them. We now have that going on in this pandemic, whether it's telemedicine or a robot that carries a patient or a pronating bed in a hospital. And right. we're going to soon have it with self-driving trucks because we don't have people to drive the trucks. Who knows where this goes? So what do you do when you, when you get capital investment instead of labor? You get productivity gains, which means you can get growth without the inflation shock. You get the inflation shock at the front end. We've got it. We've had it. Every single pandemic had it. Interesting data. In the European post-medieval shocks, you can see some of this in historical references. You can see a government in Europe act to try to maintain wage controls because the price of labor was rising, and obviously the power that be was in trying to influence to suppress the ability of people to get paid more. If you look at interest rates on some loans, you can find they rolled over and declined post-shock. And if you look at prices, you can see the price shocks coming from foods or from agriculture, changes which are observable. In the antiquity period, you can't find any history. Why? Labor was slave labor. Huh. So, so during, during the plague in Athens, it was interesting. I, I tried to find a wage change. First of all, it's hard to find what the wages were 
in Athens. Secondly, uh, you know, I, I looked everywhere. I looked in a, a Professor Ed Cohen, who studied Greek history, actually wrote um, a marvelous book on prostitution in Athens. Can you imagine writing such a book? And you can't find the prices in Athens. You can't find changes in prices. For example, I was able to find that a mercenary uh, who was hired to fight a war, and those days you had mercenaries and you hired them to fight wars, and they, they were paid a, a one drachma a day, but when they were in battle, they were paid two. And that was the rate at which you went to hire people to fight wars for you. One drachma, normally one drachma. combat pay was two drachma. Two drachma. That's and right. what's the conversion rate from drachma to dollars? Do we do we know what... Well, this is I, ancient Greece, so... It, right. It, so, it, so no BLS, no monthly data... We're really trying to reconstruct this from broken fragments uh, and right. papyrus reeds from 2,000 years ago. Papyrus reeds and Thucydides translated uh, with a good English translation. It's not so easy to do, but it's fascinating because there are references. So I've broken the references into three pieces. Antiquity, which is really a history lesson. Medieval period, think of it as four or five hundred years, starting with the Great Plague. And the most recent period, which is um, Spanish flu period and Asian flu period. And the message is always the same. The anecdotes are different, but they all tell the same story. You get a shock, you get wages up, you get a reallocation to capital because you have fewer people, you have to replace the functions, you get a productivity gain, inflation is transitory. Transitory needs definition of time because it's an intertemporal relationship, but it does happen. Yeah, I find that whenever people talk about transitory, the the audience says, all right, you got three days, and then if I don't see my results in three days, then it's not transitory. When you use the phrase transitory, and, and, and you and I have discussed this before, I'm in the same camp as you, you're talking about um, anywhere from two, four, six quarters or more. Well, I, I would agree, and I would like to add, the shock isn't even over yet. Only we got a bunch of people walking around the United States saying, oh, I want it to be over. Okay, you can want it to be over. The virus doesn't care what you want. <laughs> so so let me let me follow up with one other period I have to ask you about. So the Greeks 2,000 years ago, medieval 500 years ago, what you've described as modernity in terms of the early 19-teens, um, and under Eisenhower in the late 1950s. Between Eisenhower and today, though, uh, was Zika. And you also did a study of the impact of Zika. Tell us what you learned from that. Was that consistent with these other health-related pandemic shocks? Uh, what was your takeaway? Well, the takeaway from Zika, and you know, I wrote a nine-chapter, I think it was, pamphlet about it, and did, a, did some research about Zika. In fact, it was fascinating. I actually took a trip to Cuba, which had um, a preventive medicine only. It's a poor country, and I was able with uh, uh, 
a gratuity or two to actually walk. You notice I'm being polite when I say a gratuity or two. Um, yeah. uh, I was able to actually walk with mosquito spraying units in the morning and see how they managed this uh, mosquito-borne, because it's a mosquito vector. Yep. And, and what Zika did was have the early-stage pandemic disease fear risk component, but it never evolved into a pandemic or a large spread. So you saw signs of it in South American countries, and it was a mosquito vector, and you saw cases of it, but it never got big enough to be pandemic risk. The early stage had the fear component. Mm -hmm. Ebola, by the way, did the same. It was so fatal. And therein lies what's an alarming lesson or trajectory that history teaches. History says these things mutate and mutate and mutate. Yep. And some of those mutations, 99% of them, I don't know the exact number, but a huge number, have no material change. And therefore, they don't get a Greek letter called Delta or right. Omicron or Alpha or other name. But every once in a while, the mutations become extraordinarily different. Omicron is very transmissible, but not as dangerous in terms of death, although if you're not vaccinated, it'll get you. It's simple as that. What we don't know is, is a mutation in front of us which has the killer cytokine storm trigger that made the Spanish flu what it really was. And we don't know. That's the unknown. And it was the unknown with SARS in 2003. It was the unknown with MERS. It was the unknown with Zika. It was the unknown with Ebola. And it is the unknown with COVID. And it seems that throughout history, there is a, a period in a pandemic where some mutation or alteration makes it very deadly. That changes behaviors because a lot of people who in history said, oh, it's, it's, it's religiously based or God is punishing us or God is punishing the ones who got sick or whatever the reasons were in history, suddenly say, wait a minute, this is really serious and can affect me. And we've reached maybe some of that in the U.S. We've got all approximately a million excess deaths in the United States. But we've got a whole population that still doesn't get it. It's, so I, I don't know where this ends up. It, it, we'll talk a little bit more about the anti-vaxxer movement later. I want to stick with the impact of these shocks on the economy and the market because essentially we're a finance show, if nothing else. So you mentioned that wages go up. Um, inflation, uh, t am, I, am I interpreting this right? You're saying inflation spikes but then eventually rolls over as do rates. What What is the impact on equities? We, we, we get the impact on bonds there, but what is the impact in the world of equities? Well, it, it 
that's not easy to do because we don't have a lot of history. But we have some history. We have a century in the United States, two, two pandemics, and now this one. And we have some references in Europe, but not very much. Um, but the impact is that when you reallocate from labor to capital, that means you go to entrepreneurial businesses. Entrepreneurial businesses get productivity gains. That's how the growth takes place in the new demographically adjusted population. And it becomes more profitable. And we see that in the U.S. equity response so far. And we, I believe, once we get post-pandemic shock in other places in the world, we'll see it there as well. So far, the U.S. has had a leadership role. Look at how well we did in trying to roll out vaccines. And by the way, we're now lagging, no longer leading. That's a shame. Um, but that's the case. Our companies are leading. Our population isn't. So uh, equities do well. Owning survivors, the winners, there are winners and losers in every shock, and the winners really do well. Huh, quite fascinating. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk a little bit about Cumberland, because you guys were a little bit of ahead ahead of the curve. The company is founded in '73, so you're just about gee, almost almost 50 years old. But about a decade ago, you relocated Cumberland from the tri-state area to Florida. Tell us a little bit about what the motivation of that relocation was. It turned out that you were on the leading edge of a lot of financial firms. Uh, looking to relocate to places where the cost structure is cheaper and the taxes are lower. Uh, well, it, it, we we were looking at the move in uh, late two thousand six, seven, and eight, and the financial crisis was unfolding at the time. What we found is uh, my colleagues and I were on airplanes to Florida all the time, so that became a trigger. I, per, at that point, it was my company, and now I have 17 shareholders, and the majority of them are employees, but I was the driver in 2008-2009, and um, I uh, was the caregiver for my mother, who died in 2008. So it was a restraining uh, a situation for me before I moved. The move commenced seriously to Florida in 2009. We had examined it for a number of years. And we started to transition the entire company. And we still have a little office in New Jersey. We still have a person um, and sometimes two people in the New Jersey office. But everything is in Florida. It took us four years to move people. It was literally during the financial crisis and aftermath, so it was very difficult. Um, and there's a long story 
as to how we got to Sarasota instead of the East Coast, and that's another story. But the bottom line is we're now here. We're about 46 people, um, and we do most of the activities in Florida. The motivation was not just taxes. Everybody says, oh, yeah, you went there to cut your taxes. Well, that was part of it. And certainly in New Jersey, after John Corzine hiked taxes, he encouraged us to leave. I jokingly say John Corzine bought my condo for me. That's what I was laughing about because I remember that exact line coming from you, you know, eight years ago. Well, we moved into a very nice place that Corzine paid for, meaning what you're not paying in state taxes basically covers your the cost of your uh, very nice housing uh, on on the intercoastal. Yeah, well, here's the here's the thing though. We we had our accounts at the time, and I said, look at the company and give me the picture if this were in Florida. And he said, well, that's easy. We just change the income tax and business tax. I said, no, 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 no. Take all these people, have them live in the same value house, have them insure their cars in Florida. Give me a full picture. The full picture was really compelling because the cost structure totally, besides just the direct taxes, was was an enormous amount. So I said, so if I move people and I can give them real incentives, and those incentives give them an opportunity to really examine a full picture, and that's what we created. We had a very strong incentive package of moving expenses. We reimbursed bonuses if you make the move. If you choose not to make the move, you stay at your desk in New Jersey. Um, and all but two eventually made the move. And we had to deal with a whole lot of issues. People had to sell houses and they had to buy houses and they had to deal with families and I had the biggest crisis I had was somebody's daughter had a date for the prom and couldn't come. And by the way, she broke up and went to the prom with somebody else. But I mean, we went through it all, but we got everybody here. So, and, so that was way before the pandemic. The, the question I, I'm leading you towards is, so now with the pandemic, the past two years, you and I have talked about hiring people, having never met them in person and having never had them step into your office, but having them work remote it raises the question, how has the pandemic and, and the work-from-home era changed the entire calculus of where a firm like yours can, can elect to locate itself? Well, it's massive. You've written about it in describing your own experiences. Mm-hmm. Work-from-home, I have too. Work-from-home can be in Idaho. Or in Florida, it has it can be for many people where you want it to be and what you do. And I would add, it's made us much more productive. Our capacity to do things and accomplish units of work, if you will, is so much improved depending on what you do. Mm-hmm. So... Um, Work from home. Why Florida, if it's so attractive, is not growing as fast as Idaho? Why is this change taking place? So you have to ask yourself, 
are people rethinking location mm-hmm. and lifestyle. And I think that you look at places like Idaho and Montana, you look at sections of the country, and you say, something's going on here because they want to get out of the center of the big city. You and I have friends who have moved out of Center City in downtown New York. Why? And are they going to come back? I mean, we, we ha- this is all part of what I call pandemic shock disruption. Mm-hmm. So let's it let's has- go into let's delve into that a little more deeply. And I want to talk about wages, and I want to talk about real estate. The first question is, if uh, and and let's not count the dozen partners and or people whose names are on the door at a firm like yours or mine. Um, we're talking about you know either new hires or or administrative staff. If you can locate them anywhere in the country, do you pay the same wages in Idaho that you do in San Francisco or New York, or is it a cost savings having a person remote in an area where the cost of living is so much lower? Well, that's a, that's that's a good question, but. Is it just savings, or can you obtain and hire better skill set? And more productivity. Yes, and more productivity. And so paying more really obtains you a better bargain. Hmm. And And both of those things are happening. And this whole notion, there was a book. I have a book in my library from 1935 or that area by a German economist by the name of Lersch, uh, unknown mostly, and he wrote about the economics of location and did it in those days in the form of concentric circles to a center point and distance. The concept in that book, not the location itself, because in those days you had to think about a horse or a cart or right. maybe a railroad, but the concept of location was discussed in valuing distance. Work from home in the modern environment eliminates the distance, but it identifies the values which were just articulated a century ago in that book. And they're at work today. You use them, I use them, a lot of us who can use them. And so what we now have is this divide, another disruption, between those of us who can gain these advantages and do so, and those who are unable to. And they are the ones who have a problem, and they suffer. And so we get this divided community in which we live. And we find our neighbor cannot take advantage of the positives, but has to confront in daily life the risks and the negatives. That's a political discussion in the United States, as well as a societal risk that comes out of pandemics. Barry, every pandemic shock also had disruption in governance. Huh. Really they interesting. But before we, we move to politics, I want to stick with real estate, because what you were just discussing, the concentric circles around urban areas, I literally had this conversation over the weekend with Jonathan Miller, who's the famed real estate appraiser and data wonk at Miller Samuel, and we were talking about rings around cities, 
and my frame of reference is New York City, but it's true in Chicago, although it's a partial ring because it's up against the Great Lake, or, or San Francisco or L.A. or really any city you want to think about, you have this ring immediately around the city, the bedroom communities that are less than a 30-minute commute. Those are some of the most expensive real estate today. And then the next ring, 30 to 45 minutes a little less expensive, but still, you know, not cheap, pretty, pretty expensive. And as you get out past 60 minutes or longer, real estate prices start to drop appreciably. What is that dynamic that Lurcher observed and that Jonathan and I observed as the pandemic wears on and as people find the ability to locate themselves anywhere? Uh, I can imagine that inner ring is going to be the partners and the people who are at the top of the income scale, and they want a fast, easy commute into the city for the two or three days they're probably going into the city to work, or maybe every day if they're on a trading desk or at a hedge fund or a private equity or VC type of shop. But what about the next rings, the 45 minutes away, the 90 minutes away? Uh, Are those areas going to be at a disadvantage to places like Idaho and Wyoming? Well, we don't know. But history, history says that what we had up until January, February, or March of 2020 is changed. And the change is structural, not temporary. And it will unfold over the next few years. And history would say those who long to go back to what was before the pandemic are going to be disappointed because it isn't going to be there. Hmm. The world has changed. Every pandemic in history introduced change. And the change, which was geographical when transportation was on a horse or a cart, is now electronic for whatever portion of economic activity takes place in the virtual space. And that's a lot. And it's also more and more not just finance. We think of it in finance because we're in the finance area. But if I get some spot and I need a dermatologist, what do I do today? I take a picture of it. I send it to the dermatologist. He looks at it. He texts or emails or calls me on the phone. And we talk about it. I don't have to go to his office. I can be a thousand miles away. So this is massive disruption of what we had. Huge introduction of productivity gain in every single sphere. Every single thing we think about. And we've only begun to see it. And I keep saying... I, you know, I had a conversation with John Farrow last month in, in an interview on surveillance, and he said, what's your takeaway from this? And I said, the takeaway is it is a huge shock. It's not business as usual. And, we, and it's still going on. It's not over yet. So huh. this is monstrous. So, so I want to get to politics, but before I do, I have to stick with the technology question that you're dancing around a little bit, the pushback to the shock thesis is not so much that this changes everything 
and we're going to start with a clean sheet of paper, but we actually had all these trends in place pre-pandemic, and this accelerated them and brought them all forward uh, by a decade. So think about what we're doing currently. Zoom calls or Google hand calls, we've been doing that in my office for a decade. Now everybody is very comfortable with it. Screen shares, FaceTime on your iPhone, delivery of food, delivery of supermarkets, just everything gravitating so rapidly towards online and Amazon. What do you take of the claim that, hey, none of this is new. You've just moved us to 2031 instead of 2021 in terms of where we are technology-wise dealing with uh, the pandemic? Uh, I would I would say that history would show that every pandemic accelerated procedures and directions and trajectories which were underway. That's what a shock would do. Mm-hmm. It also had another impact if the trajectory was in the direction of something that was going to fail. It accelerated the failure. Both happened. So it speeds things up in addition to introducing a new disruption. Simultaneity of both speed and form of disruption. So what you've described, I totally agree with. But you were in a place and in a business. I'm in a place and in a business where we were in a very adaptive phase. The rest of the world didn't have to adapt. The shock forced them to. That huh. was the accelerator. Yeah, we, now, we're fortunate that when we launched back in 2013, we were built for virtual from day one. So this transition was really very easy for us. And, and I very much empathize with people. Uh, my neighbor is, is an orthopedic surgeon. He says, I, you know, we're not at the point where I could log into my computer and, and uh, manipulate a robot remotely. I have to go to the hospital to, to do surgeries. And there was a period in 2020 where any elective surgery was canceled. So, you know, he was setting bones and, and fixing other things. But that's, you know, a third of his practice. He said for about six months, he was afraid he was going to have to lay off all his people. I, I'm, I'm very empathetic for people, uh, especially frontline workers who are putting their own health and safety at risk, dealing, dealing with the public, which brings us to the politics of this. What do you make of, of some of the pushback? I know we're all exhausted and tired of the pandemic, but this started from day one. What do you make of the pushback to government interventions, mandates, masks, uh, vaccine requirements? How do you you interpret this stuff? Well, history of pandemics would suggest that finger-pointing, political um, distraction, governance was a victim in every pandemic, behaviors are being repeated now in various ways. And part of the pandemic history is the pandemic, the, the, the disease, doesn't have a political party. Right. And it eventually gets those who are more likely 
not to be wary of it or whose behaviors expose them more. That's what disease does. Right. And this is no different. It's apolitical. It's just opportunistic. Look, in Milan in 1632, I I don't remember exactly, um, the the governor um, heard about, this is during the plagues that went through the Italian city-states in the 17th century, and the governor of Milan heard about what was going on. He sent two emissaries. He said, you guys go over to Siena. In those days, you had to ride there on a horse. Right. And look around, see what you see, and come back and tell me. (laughs) So they do. See if you could bring the disease back with you. Yeah, well, they come back and they say, Governor, people are dying and lying in the streets. They can't pick up the bodies fast enough. He says, we cannot tell the people. Listen, now, we have documentation because at this point we have some written documentation. So what does he do? He says, number one, get the governing council, let's report. Number two, let's not tell the people we don't want to scare them. Number three, we have a new princess. We'll have a celebration and a joyful celebration. So he convenes it, and he hosts a super spreader, and three months (laughs) later he's got dead people all over his town. That was 1630, Barry. Yeah, well, you would hope we have learned over the ensuing 500 years how to behave in a pandemic, although arguably many of us have not. Well, it's the nature of the human being. Well, let me ask you this question. As someone who's vaxxed and boosted, and as soon as they give me the green light to cross um, boost, uh, I'm Pfizer up till now, I will happily go get the Moderna as number four. I'm not worried about, you know, I'm trying to avoid getting catching it, but I'm not worried about a terrible outcome of, of hospitalization, ventilator, and death. However, this long COVID is quite a scary proposition. What do you think about this, and, and how has this, to bring it back from the human element to the uh, economy, how has this impacted uh, the labor force and, and the overall impact of, of you know, how we're dealing with the pandemic? Well, I, I, I believe long COVID is really a monster issue in front of us. A uh, little disclosure, I sponsored and sponsoring for the Global Interdependence Center a webinar series on long COVID and the health issues. Um, I'm part of a group which is a long COVID initiative. And here's what we know. In the U.K., we've now identified over a million, by their definition, long COVID patients. They have a population of 67 million. If we use that reference for the United States, we're due for five or six million cases. The numbers grow every single reporting period. In the United States, we now have about 150 long COVID clinics. In America, we had zero a year ago. We have about 50 pediatric long COVID clinics. We had zero a year ago. What are we finding? People think of COVID as a respiratory disease. That's how you get it. But there's more and more evidence that it's a blood disease. It gets into you. Then you get microclots, and it gets to all your organs. So long COVID, I think, is a big issue. The estimates for the United States are somewhere between 10 and 20 million cases before this is over. And, again, back to the political question. 
the vaccines tend so far to reduce enormously the risk of long COVID if you get sick. Mm-hmm. The unvaccinated are going to be the victims. If they didn't die, they are the most likely to get long COVID symptoms. It's a terrible circumstance, but long COVID is here. It's big, and it's going to be bigger and bigger. Think of it as people who are temporarily, partially, or permanently disabled. Wow. And that's a cohort of millions, and many of them are labor force age. So and let me ask you about that deal. exact question, because following the financial crisis in 08 I think people were somewhat surprised at the big surge, the big uptick in disability uh, applications that took place. Uh, uh, a shocking large sur- slice of the labor force moved to disability. Are, are you suggesting we're going to see the same sort of thing post-COVID? Yes, I think we're going to see it. I think it's going to be bigger than people think. I think there's going to be all the fights with the insurance company and who's going to pay and what are the definitions. Right now, the World Health Organization, the U.K. and the U.S. HHS have three different. They're similar, but they're not identical. And we have to remember this is a worldwide disease, which means disabled here is also disabled in all the countries of the world. Wow. Amazing. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. There seems to be a ton of focus on the Federal Reserve and inflation and and rising interest rates. But before we dive deep into the Fed, let's start with its chairman. What do you make of Jay Powell? What sort of job has he been doing uh, navigating over the past six years? Well, uh, my opinion is that Jay Powell has been a terrific central bank chairman in the midst of this pandemic. Number one, he's a student of history. Number two, he knows the degrees through, uh, and he has a lens which is deeper than just monetary economics. So he sees it in the, in the full sense of financial markets, look at all the different programs that were implemented along the way. And he also sees it in terms of community impact and people impact on 335 million Americans. And so I applaud Powell. And those who criticize him after the fact, it's easy to quarterback a game on a Monday, if I can use the cliche, miss what it's like to have to make real-time decisions in the midst of such a shock. Powell has done that, and he's done it really well under the circumstances. There's an entire committee in the Fed which is reaching to community elements that are outside the banking system, philanthropy, community activities, support systems, and it's advising the Fed on impacts. 
it's not well known. The minutes are published. People don't mm-hmm. know about it. What has Powell done? He said the Federal Reserve's position must be much broader than this, the narrowly defined banking system, financial stability. Those are important. That's our bread-and-butter business. But if we don't get to the full impact in the country, we're missing this shock and its effects. And that's something that Powell has done very quietly, no fanfare. I've had occasion to speak to people who are on that committee, and some of the programs from the Federal Reserve, which narrowed to very small balances to be able to give financial support in the system to smaller businesses, conduit structures, came out of that sensitivity. Let me pick up on that, because the consistent criticism we've heard about the Fed, and, and we have, at some of the events we go to, you know the exact people, I won't mention them by name, but you know the people who bring up Look at how giant the Federal Reserve balance sheet has become. Look at the rate of change over the past 10, 20, 30 years. This is unprecedented and it ends badly. How do you respond to the folks who say the accumulation of assets on the Federal Reserve balance sheet is uh, problematic and will result in subsequent crises? Well, I would answer two ways, with two elements, because... In our dialogue in the business that we're both in, we get those kinds of conversations all the time. And I say to somebody, show me, number one, a study which is curated that determines the optimal size of the Fed's balance sheet. Produce the study not to criticize its size. Produce the study to say, this is how large it should be, and this is why. Now, we do know there are some elements in the Fed's balance sheet. For example, currency in circulation, it's a liability. The Treasury balances, it's a liability. Necessary bank reserves, it's a liability. To do that, you need assets on the other side. You have to support the international balances. So that's global central bank repo redeposits at the Fed. So that's a liability. So you can add up some elements and say, gee, I can get to four or five or six trillion immediately, and I haven't gone beyond it. Now the question becomes, how much cushion should you have? And how big should it be? And Ben Bernanke himself said, if you wait long enough, the balance sheet will absorb any size over time as long as you have nominal growth. He's right. So this finger-pointing about the size of the Fed's balance sheet and hand-wringing about it, to me, is a great way to introduce hyperbole without curated facts. Why, if it's so bad and so inflationary and so destructive, is the Japanese central bank balance sheet larger than the GDP of the country, and there's no inflation. And and, and to be fair, to be fair about the U.S. central bank and the current bout of inflation, hey, it's been 12 years with very, very low inflation. 
to blame the post-pandemic period on the Fed balance sheet, to blame that inflation really seems to be a, an unfair accusation. I completely agree. I think it's taking advantage of a shock to throw a political barb. Well, central banks are always fair game because they cannot defend themselves right. in political environments. So they're an easy target for a politician or a critic. It's a whole different story when you have to sit in the room in real time and make a decision. And you don't have a full plate of facts because you're in a moving environment. So I'm a defender of Powell. I think the Fed has done as good a job as you could ever expect under these extraordinary circumstances. So so what do you make of the current move? We're, we're actually recording this early January. Powell is, is literally testifying to Congress as as we speak, so we don't get to hear what he is currently saying. What do you make of the current move towards a taper and the idea that quantitative easements and purchases of bonds have run their course? We, we won't even get to zero interest rate policy just yet. What do you think of QE and the idea of, of the taper? Well, to, to taper from some level to some lower level and then eventually to zero is something that eventually had to happen. And the forces that require the Fed to do that, which are both political and economic in the face of evidence of this shorter term, you're quite right, inflation shock, require them to do that. My biggest fear is the Fed will try to do two things at once. It'll try to reset an interest rate to a higher level than zero. I never like zero because it's such a distortion. I don't mind if it was a quarter of a point or a half a point floor, but zero distorted things, and we were in it a long time. To do that and also alter the composition and size of the balance sheet at the same time is to try to do two very difficult things simultaneously. Mm -hmm. It's hard enough for the central bank to do one of them. And so my view is they should tackle one before they tackle the other. And if I were sitting in that room, I would tackle the interest rate first. I'd take a hike in March or April or may get the rate above zero, clear markets, clear repo, clear SOFR, get an operating system above zero. So anybody who's got any cash anywhere in the world can put it to work and get more than a single basis point at some place. And now you have a market clearing mechanism. And then when you get interest rates right, then you can tackle the size of the balance sheet. I'm afraid, though, the pressure is such they're going to do both at once. And to me, that's a recipe for trouble. Huh. That's really uh, that's really interesting. So, what does this mean for your business? You are essentially known. Cumberland is known as a bond shop. At one point, Muni bonds were super attractive uh, on an after-tax basis as a source of yield versus treasuries or even high-grade corporates. Given everything that's taken place, first with the financial crisis and and then subsequently with the pandemic. Uh, how should bond investors be operating in this environment? 
Well, I don't know what others should do, but I can say what we do do. Uh, we've been running a barbell. Barbell means you've got a slug of a portfolio, depending on the type of portfolio, in the short and uh, earlier, shorter duration maturities, and you get very low yield there. And then you have a piece in the longer maturities, which is how you get some yield by blending them. Our duration in the morning meeting yesterday was approximately four. That is relatively short. Mm-hmm. So we've been rolling uh, duration around four, waiting for the opportunity for markets to deliver a higher yield. Now, today, you could, as we're speaking, you can look at the market and say, well, I could get about 3% in a high-grade tax-free bond, depending on what state and jurisdiction but my guess is, as rates rise, and it looks like they're going to, uh, we may get close to three and a half or four in a municipal yield. Mm-hmm. Out of four, this becomes a very attractive rate. Really interesting. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. So we're recording this early in January. The 10-year yield has just ticked up about 1.8% or so. Uh, do you think the bond markets are seeing inflation as a structural element of the economy looking forward, or do they see this as transitory? Um, bond markets are adjusting upward of you away from much lower inflation expectations to something higher. Um, the shock inflation measures we see at 6 and 7% are inconsistent with the yields in the bond market of 1.8 or 2 or 2.5 or even 3. So what the bond market is saying is we're going to have an adjustment. It's not going to be anywhere near this high single-digit perpetual rate of inflation. This is a temporary shock. Now, where it comes out, 2, 2 2.5, 3% maybe but not a lot more. That's what the bond market is saying. And history would say, if we have a transition and we get beyond the shock, that's the more likely outcome. Hmm. Really, really interesting. So if we think the shock eventually passes, what's the best definition of, of transitory? Are you implying it's 12 to 24 months before we're back to a more normal footing, albeit at higher federal funds rate and and higher yield on the 10-year? I I think so. It's an opinion. We'll find out in a couple of years. But my worry is central banks in their hurry to renormalize policy make the transitory rollover worse. And they are under pressures to do so everywhere in the world. And so my worry is they go too far too fast. So you want a more gradual shift towards away from the emergency footing and towards a more normal 
uh, footing from central banks around the world, which raises an interesting question. What do you think about what's been going on from a macro perspective in China, or a, as well as the rest of the non-Chinese emerging market world? Well, China is a story. We have an emerging dictatorship. We have a model, the Mao Zedong model, modernized. And we see behaviors in China in the second largest economy in the world. And they are alarming. Um, where this leads, I don't know. Um, my hope is that behaviors don't get to war, which mm-hmm. I don't think anybody wants. It doesn't serve a purpose. But the relationship between the United States and China is permanently changed, permanently meaning for at least a generation. And it's evolving. In the United States, politics drive a hard China line, both parties. In China, politics drive more isolationism, a different internal structure, no dissent permitted, a suppression of whatever forces of dissent or outspokenness or existing, and the forced initiatives of Beijing on a population of 1.4 billion people, huh. and that's underway. So that's what we—that's the world that we live in, and are probably going to live in for the rest of our lives. Wow. And what now, about you the and rest I are of... only you, you and I are only thirty nine years old, like Jack Benny. So we, you know, we have time. That's right. Um, what about the rest of the emerging markets outside of China? How do you look at those parts of the world when China has become so such an outsized contributor to global GDP? What's your perspective there? Well, I, I think there are some places that are are of a real interest. So I think Vietnam is a frontier market um, that has entrepreneurial characteristics independent of China. Uh, South Korea is an example of a developed market. There are plenty of places that are not China. And Taiwan, of course, emerges as a mature market, although it's got geopolitical risk with China so close. But what we see is many places which have the ability to modernize, highly productive, contribute to world economic activity, and do so with with modern skills. And they will supplant China. They will be go-to places for capital investment. And China is less and less a safe place. I've been to China several times. I wouldn't travel to China now, not because of COVID, because I would feel at risk being there. Others say the same thing. You and I have a lot of colleagues who have business relationships and analytical relationships with China, and they are afraid. They physically wouldn't go now. Really? Oh, yeah. And you know, we speak when we're together in Maine. We we meet and talk about these things. As as uh, you're you're an old timer. You're a tenured professor up there. I am. I am. But I'm kind of surprised that people would. You mean fear physically for their safety 
as an American in China? Yes, I would. I wouldn't go today. From the public or from the government? Uh, well, I would be afraid of the government, and I'm not sure how welcome I would be now as an American from the public. When I was in China, it was a very welcoming experience. When I was in China with a group of economists and we traveled around, it was a welcoming experience. Hong Kong, a welcoming experience. Beijing, a welcoming experience. Today, not the same. People really? People go there, they describe it, and they say it's different. You go and and the way you're treated, greeted, and viewed is different. Things have changed. Wow, now, a lot of shocking. things in China have changed because the people are afraid of their government. And understandable reasons. So for me, I think, uh, you know, I, I watch a lot of our colleagues and a lot of investment firms, and they're placing money at risk and... China and they're developing things in China and okay that's their decision. My view is China is a growing risk for capital investment, entrepreneurial investment, um, and physically dangerous for some people. So you're preaching to the choir about capital risk. I asked the question a year ago: Is China becoming uninvestable? When you see what they did to Alibaba and the rest of the tech space, and some people tried to draw a parallel to what Donald Trump did, Trump was mostly noise and tweets about companies. This is actually government action in China um, affecting how companies operate and behave, not just noise but rules. So, So I understand where you're coming from saying you would be reluctant to put capital at risk there. Um, but you brought something else up that I'm, I'm eager to talk about. You mentioned uh, fishing and, and what we've done in Maine. So let's talk a little bit about what's become known as Camp Kotak, uh, where you gather four or five dozen economists, fund managers, commentators, analysts, etc., for what what some people have described as a more productive miniature version of of Davos, tell us a little bit about Camp Kotak. Well, it's interesting. Now you you've been a regular there for a lot of years, so I going back to I think '08 was my first year. Yeah, so you're a tenured professor at Camp Kotak. You, you think about you think about the history. We're 20 years since. Um, the towers and the attack in New York. And it was the year after the World Trade Center event that ratcheted up the discussion and the number of people who would say, all right, I'll come with you. We'll go out in the woods and we'll spend a weekend. And I don't care about fishing. I remember Harvey Rosenblum (laughs) from the Dallas Fed the first time he held a fishing rod in his hand and I said, Harvey, you're not supposed to hit the fish over the head. You actually have to use a hook and line. And, and Harvey head of, was head of research uh, at the Dallas Fed, not yeah. an inconsequential economist. Yeah, well, he was director of research at the Dallas Fed for a long time, sat in a lot of federal open market committees yeah. of the Fed and everything else. But he came, and before that he never would have. Never would have come. What, me, go out to Maine fishing? What are you talking about? So it, it's changed. We've created a, an environment, I think, where there are periods of conversation under Chatham House rule 
where people are comfortable and they can speak privately and they can talk about their views of the world and they can exchange views and take a takeaway. Um, those conversations are rare anymore. So, so let's so let's a place that we can hold them. So, so let's stay with that because I was discussing Maine with another friend of ours, and we're going to be name dropping everywhere. David Nodig, who who his takeaway was being outside with people in nature, engaging in holistic thinking, being able to have these important, meaningful discussions in private, not in the public square. He says that's a completely different experience than than something like Davos or anywhere else where everything is televised and it's just completely uh, a public spectacle. Was that the intention from the beginning, or it did did it just in, evolve into this wonderful outdoor experience? Well, evolution. I think's the right word. You know, Dave told me he's already in communication with you to figure out how to ride together or something like right. that. <laughs> so we did that last it, year, also. Yeah. So I mean, we <clears throat> we've we've created something. It's evolved over time. We've changed lodges and we've modified the program. Some people say, "Gee, why do you have thirty minutes of a panel before dinner?" And why not do it in the afternoon? People don't want to do it in the afternoon. The right. fact is, if you do 30 minutes before dinner, Barry, you've been a moderator, you've been a yeah. speaker at part of those sessions. We talk about a topic for 30 minutes in a structured environment. 30 minutes is enough. And then the dinner conversation morphs into all kinds of things for the next two hours. That, that's right. And the secret is you close the bar during the panel discussion so you have everybody's attention and as soon as it's over the bar reopens and and the conversation really starts and we do it before dinner right remember they're hungry they've been out in the woods all day so that, you, that, you get them wet then you close the bar then you keep them hungry for 30 minutes and everybody and you, as you know you were you were you ran a panel and you said and the rules were seven minutes. I remember you standing in the front of the dining hall and said, seven minutes, I'm going to shut you down, go to the next one. You were, that's what you have People to do. People threw rolls at me. They wanted to <laughs> keep going. I, it was, it's very unruly group to um, enforce discipline, especially by the time you roll around to the second or third night and the second or third glass of wine. Uh, it's amazing how people you think of as buttoned-down, stiff, Economists turn out to be uh, a, a little more uh, free-flowing when, when the time is right. No question, for sure. So, so I, when I think of you, when I describe David Kotak, uh, there's a lot of different ways I think of you, but I think the legacy of Camp Kotak has probably had the greatest impact on the greatest number of people even those people three and four and five steps removed from the event to the point where, where people have asked me, hey, what do I have to do to get on the Camp Kotak list? And my answer is always, you're sucking up to the wrong guy. you got to go suck up to David, not me. It's called Camp Kotak, not Camp Ritholtz. He's the guy to talk to. Well, thank you very much, um... There are a lot of folks who raise that question. Interesting mix of folks because we always try to mix it up, and we're 
you know, also involved with the Global Interdependence Center now, and that helps with what we try to organize and do the programming for it. It's interesting if I can just say the name Camp Kotak was not coined by me. No. Uh, it, it, Steve Leisman was up there, and he was right. interviewing me on the deck. I don't know if I can do a Macy's Gimbals thing here, but whatever. No, absolutely. Leisman was a ri- not only was he there for CNBC, um, and CNBC and Bloomberg have both been up there with cameras, but he's a pretty well-known deadhead and a singer musician, and he would bring a guitar and entertain people. Yes, and if he comes back this year, and I've invited him, he can bring it again. I would tell you, he's also an excellent fly fisherman. We've fished together, but. When Leesman was interviewing me on the deck and they broke to a commercial break, it was Becky Quip who coined the name Camp Kotak and oh, put that's it in so the banner. Funny. That's where the name came from. I didn't create the name. When and I first tough. heard the name, it, I heard the Shadow Federal Reserve Committee was how yes. it initially was approached to me. And uh, I had enough people ask me about it that eventually... I wrote this long 2,000-word missive for Business Week about it that I still get emails about. You know, it was a yeah. couple of years ago already. That name came from John Hilsenrath when he was writing a column. He was up there, and he wrote a column for, in the journal, and he called it the Shadow Kansas City Fit. That's hilarious. Well, I know I only have you for a limited amount of time, and I want to get to my favorite questions as much as I would love to wax nostalgic about all things Camp Kotak, I, I, I do have to share one funny story, and I'm not going to mention names, but we were playing poker one night, me and a buddy who's a hedge fund manager. On his right is uh, an equity manager at a, you know, bold-faced name brand shop. On, on my left is a bond manager at also a name face you know, a bold-faced name brand shop, and they both get up to go get more drinks, and they each ask us, hey, would would you like another glass of wine? Sure, bring each of us say yes. And I turn to my hedge fund buddy, and I say, I just want to point out that my uh, waiter manages a trillion dollars. Your waiter only manages $500 billion. <laughs> and that's like a typical Camp Kotak type of uh, a story. And And I have, we all have, endless endless versions of that with that said let's jump to some of our favorite questions we ask all of our guests starting with given the pandemic and the lockdown tell us what you're streaming these days what's entertaining you on uh either netflix or amazon prime okay so uh, you gave me warning about the five questions mm-hmm. so i had time to think about them and i know we're up against the clock with only a few minutes. So I thought about that, and I said, okay, I'll pick one, and that's Don't Look Up. And I believe the Meryl Streep movie, Don't Look Up, which is a parody on the politics of the country in so many ways, is a wonderful, wonderful modern parody. I enjoyed it, thought about it, I particularly liked some of the characters who depicted those which were part of our political scene. So I would say Don't Look Up makes the movie list. Huh, really really good. Uh, let's talk about mentors. What? Who were some of your mentors who helped to shape your career? 
Well, uh, I, I, I thought about two. An economist, probably not widely known, a Hungarian economist, Gabriel Karakesh, that's many, many years ago. And uh, he was a mentor for me in many ways. And with him, I actually joined in publishing the first editorial piece in a publication that was 1973, maybe, Mm -hmm. something like that, Gabriel Karakish. And I had great political mentorship from Governor Tom Kane. I was able to be part of his administration and work with him and get to know them. And he affirms for me to this day, I spoke with him just a few weeks ago, um, that there is a hope for this great experiment called democracy in the United States. It's a glass half full. It's under a lot of stress these days. But Cain is a person who doesn't give up. And and he he was able to teach me something. He said, when people get the right information, and these days that's a tough one, and they get the facts presented so they're clear, the electorate makes valid decisions. Sometimes it's tough to get to them, but he has confidence in the American system. That's something that has stayed with me. Tom Kane was a great mentor. Huh. Is, was, is. Hmm, Really interesting. He's 86, and he's still going. So let's talk books. You mentioned you're surrounded by books. I'm going to ask you this in two parts. What are some of your all-time favorite books, and what are you reading currently? Well, I read the Peloponnesian War again with Thucydides, so I had to dig into that. All-time favorite books, I've got a lot. But reading now, two books. One, you know the author, written on water. It's his third book, Randy Spencer, and he's a fishing guide up in Grand Lake Street, Maine. He's written several books, and he's got one that's got a bunch of stories about the region. And the other book I'm reading now, and I think you would know the author, is Vito Racanelli. Sure. Vito was at Barron's for two decades. Forever, right. first novel, it's a murder mystery, The Man in Milan. So good for Vito. He's ventured away from financial writing. And Randy has a good third book. Which is, what's the name of the third book? Written on Water. Written, Written on, on Water. That that makes a lot of sense. Uh, what sort of advice would you give to a recent college graduate who is interested in a career in either investment management or finance? Um, one that Winston Churchill gave to students when asked uh, about this similar question and he said study history study history study history and when you're done study more history and i think that's sound advice it's a guide we learn from history i'm saddened that the fact that our our education system doesn't teach enough history huh and our final question that we ask all of our guests Tell us what you know about the world of investing today that you wish you knew 50 years or so ago when you were first starting out. Well, there's a statistical basis, Bayesian theory. Sure. And 
Bayesian theory was something we were taught in abstract. It's applicable. We use it in our quantitative work in our shop. We use it a lot. Uh, I, I didn't give it in the earlier times the respect that Tom Bayes deserves. And I think if there's one single thing to articulate in a mathematical sense that requires you to be adaptive, it's Bayesian theory applied in finance and economics and probably a whole bunch of other things too. So let me let me drill down into this a little bit because when I think of Bayes' theorem, I, I we typically think of the traditional bell curve. Are you focusing more on that uh, right tail and black swan events, or are you focusing more on the traditional fat part of of the most likely outcomes? Well, I, I would start with the bell curve, which was a Gaussian depiction uh-huh. of data points, named for Gauss, who created it. And the notion we have is the shape of that curve and tails. But as a practical matter, no curve looks like a bell. Right. So it's scatter plot. And so what I think Bayes suggests in modern times is the data points in those scatter plots are moving. And you have to examine those shifts and the rates of change in them. Mm-hmm. So whether it's right tail or left tail or how flat the curve is, if you try to depict it, the fact is it's not constant. It's vibrating, if you will. Mm-hmm. It, has, it has features which are adjusting constantly to new metrics and new events. So it's a living thing, not a static thing. And what Bayes' math does, and when you incorporate it in the math, is attempt to measure or estimate the rates of those changes. Huh. Quite fascinating. David, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with David Kotak, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer at Cumberland Investors. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of the previous 400 or so such interviews we've done over the past eight years. You can find that at Spotify, iTunes, Bloomberg.com, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. You can sign up for my daily reading list each morning at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps put these conversations together each week. Mohamed Ramawi is my audio engineer. Uh, Paris Wald is my producer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.